This is KCLR's Bottom Line with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice. www.omf.ie Hello, good morning and welcome to The Bottom Line, the programme for and about business on KCLR. I'm John Purcell with you until 10 o'clock this morning. Thanks to John Walsh for the last two hours of music, chat and crack. So on Monday last, the nation began to emerge from lockdown at last and entered stage one of the phased reopening of society. A reopening that all going well will see people, business, communities and society return to some sort of new normal over the coming weeks. We'll be checking in with local businesses from Carlo and Kilkenny who opened their doors to a new world of social distance, new staff protocols, masks in some cases and restrictions on customers and staff. A former Secretary General of the Department of Finance and the Director of the European Investment Bank will talk to us about the crisis in the country's SME sector precipitated by the COVID-19 pandemic and I'll be asking him, does he think that the government and the civil service get the seriousness of the crisis facing small and medium-sized enterprises? And I'll be talking to Gareth Lamb, who's head of Facebook in Ireland and vice president of Facebook's global business planning and operations about the good and the not so good on Facebook during the current crisis. But first, I'm delighted to welcome back to the programme Eamon Quinn, business editor of the Irish Examiner, to tell us about a really interesting story that he had just yesterday about the structure of the economy in this area and about the challenges that lie ahead as we seek to rebuild after the crisis. Good morning, Eamon. Good morning, John. It was good to talk to you. How are you? It's uh, an interesting story you had indeed, which really drilled down into the detail of employment in this area and some very interesting uh, insights into what lies ahead. And you had a bit of an exclusive. It's the first time that we've seen such detailed breakdowns of CSO figures. Tell us more. Well, I've got figures specially prepared by the CSO, which show the number of jobs uh, by by occupation and where people live. It's broken down by by region, by European Union region, and there's a number of those regions in in Ireland and and where people live in these occupations. And from this, you can identify what are potentially the safest occupations, the safest jobs as we face into the long-term consequences of this economic storm from COVID-19. And unfortunately, you can also identify the most likely vulnerable um, jobs by region, by where people live, and break it down because they work in those areas, the two most vulnerable areas, which are uh, accommodation and food service. That's the whole hospitality and, well, area, yeah. And retail. And hospitality. These are, these are technical terms which the CSO obviously has to prepare for the European Union, for the Eurostat, and they are, they're clunky, they're clunky style definitions, but basically, as you say, John, accommodation and food service translates into hotels, um, restaurants, cafes, as well, and wholesale and retail. Um, now, you may, you may think that wholesale and retail is doing fairly, fairly well uh, in this, but the non-grocery side of the uh, coming, uh, those businesses, non-grocery side, coming out of this storm, or coming into the, the economic consequences of the storm, is, is um, are quite vulnerable. Yeah, now you mentioned... So by way of example... Yeah, sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead. 
So by way of example, um, you can use, you can look at the southeast region, you know, obviously Carlo, Kilkenny, Waterford and Wexford. And you break down, the, the workforce right across the four counties is, um, uh, is 185,000, over 185,000 people work in that region. And you can identify the relatively safe areas, you know, yeah, obviously it's agriculture across the southeast. There's 15,500 people working in agriculture. They are more than likely not uh, vulnerable to this um, this uh, the, the, the fallout, and but then you go on to the most likely, which are vulnerable, and then you identify as we ta- as we were saying there. You look at wholesale and retail. There's twenty seven. Uh, over 27,000 people in the southeast work in wholesale retail in accommodation and that clunky, as we were saying, in that clunky definition of accommodation and food service. Uh, 14,500 work in that area. You, you, do, you add those two up. Um, and as a percentage of the workforce, potentially, and this is overstating it, obviously, but potentially over 20% of the 185,000 people who work in the southeast work in the two areas which are potentially more more vulnerable than others to suffering a long-term hit. And what's interesting about the stats is that you've broken them down for the first time on a regional basis and it shows, um, if I'm correct in the reading of your article, that different regions are different. So a one-size-fits-all approach to solving the economy won't work, in your view, based on the on the information that this tells us from the Central Statistics Office. Now, what it does show is that there are certain areas uh, which are certain regions, and as we said, there are certain um, there's certain going into the storm. You want to have those a lot of jobs if you live in a region which has got a lot of say information and communication jobs. Now, because those are going to be safe. Those are everything from uh, Facebook, Google. Uh, into, um, you know, Vodafone 3, because those are doing particularly well because of, because of people working from home, etc. And now, if you look at the southeast figure, there's no such insulate. There's an insignificant number of people work in that category. So that does not provide an insulation going to the storm for the southeast. Now, there's other strengths in the southeast, it has to be said. You know, there's, um, uh, but we go through this some other time. Mm. Uh, but if you look at other regions, they are particularly vulnerable. And the Southeast is particularly uh, dependent on tourism, accommodation and food service. Uh, and that is particularly vulnerable. Now, if you look at other regions, or particularly uh, you go further into, uh, you know, into, uh, uh, you know, Clare, uh, Limerick, uh, they do depend even more, and Kerry does depend more on uh, tourism. Those are more vulnerable. And then you've got to Dublin. Now, this is not a Dublin versus everybody else or everybody else against Dublin because there are obviously a lot of vulnerable jobs in Dublin as well. But if you look at, if you break down the Dublin figures, um, there is, as I was saying, there's a huge, there's 80, over 80,000 working those, that information and communication. In other words, the Facebooks, Google, the Vodafones and Threes in Dublin. 80, 80, in Dublin alone. In Dub- that's a big installation. Construction, um, also provides because they're going back to work. People need houses. People need those offices going to be built. Now there may be, you know, there may be some fallout, but construction seems to be 
fairly safe mm. in this stuff. And there's a, across the state, there's what there's 100 and nearly 150,000 people working construction. And as you said, they're going back. Uh, they're going back this week. Damon, um, we're running out of time, unfortunately. But ju- just um, w- one big issue is the wage subsidy scheme and whether this is going to taper, when it's going to start tapering. Some some big figures out this week that are probably going to determine, or or, or on Monday, I believe, that are probably going to determine the, the, the approach the government takes. Tell us about that in the context of the return to work. The, the figures uh, out Monday will show the first week of people who are... The, the reduction... Um, in the uh, the 350 euro payment, how many? Uh, in other words, you'd be able to see how quickly those construction workers are coming back to work, and that will show other areas during the summer as they come back how many people are going to come back, uh, and in, indeed how how much money will be saved. In other words, as the economy starts up again, coming back to this, uh, what we're talking about the breakdown by region of the most vulnerable jobs it will also show that uh, the the any economic recovery package will have to be uh, the government is going to have a problem uh, these figures that are we're sidelining if they cut that 350 euro payment too quickly there's a lot of vulnerable jobs people out there who are now depending on that 350 there's a big political problem if the government thinks that they can cut that 350 very 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 quickly yeah, uh, support vital for the SME sector and indeed all all business. Okay, Eamon, we've got to leave it uh, there for the moment. Um, uh, very interesting uh, week and an interesting time. How would you characterise the sentiment at the moment, uh, Eamon? You, you mentioned about you know big political uh, decisions ahead. How are people feeling? Nervous? Well, well, you, you look at you look at. The, I was I was quite interested in the government messaging, which has seemed to have changed in in a, just a matter of two weeks. From we'll do whatever it takes in you know like a bazooka packages to save the economy, and now the the fiscal rectitude messaging is a bit of twenty ten messaging is coming back, and I don't know where that's coming from um, because. Uh, Again, these figures show that there will be requirement for huge public, this huge government spending to support people over this storm. If we do not want to end up in a a situation uh, where we ended up in 2011 with unemployment long, scarring the economy, being scarred with long-term unemployment, uh, mortgage arrears, uh, unsecured debts, shaky banks, and long-term damage. The 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 uh, there is a danger in all this back to work uh, process over the summer. You know the phase is going in that the bigger picture is being lost because we do tend to speak up these sort of things. We learned that from the last time. And the lessons from last time, the last 2010 crisis, have to be learned that the people need long-term support, uh, that there will be people in debt, uh, that people will not be able to repay their mortgages, the mortgages rates will rise, and the talk of 
um, as I saw in some sources about people being overpaid for the 350 uh, is quite dangerous talk because of the scale of the damage that could be done if the supports are withdrawn far, far too quickly. And, and when I say too quickly, I don't mean in August or September. They mean they may need to be continued to the end of the year. Okay, very interesting. Eamon, we'll follow that. Sorry to have to leave you, but lots more to cover on the programme. That's Eamon uh, Quinn, who is the business editor for the Irish Examiner. Thanks, as always, to him for joining us on the programme. Now, Eamon mentioned Facebook there, which indeed is an international business phenomenon that since its launch in a Harvard dorm room in just 2004 has changed the world. And in Ireland, the company employs around 5,000 people, and it is estimated that the users in Ireland are somewhere between two and a half and three million people. And it's become a hugely powerful communication tool. And as well as creating fantastic new ways of connecting people, has also done a huge amount of disruption, uh, some good and some not so good. And it's an unregulated media company, which according to itself is just a platform. Now, the skewing of elections, the rise of hate speech, the undermining of trust in the mainstream media, these are just some of the things that are laid at its door. I've been interested in the company and its impacts for years, but for a long time, me or anyone I know indeed has been unable to make contact with them. You won't even find them in the phone book. And they're usually very reticent when it comes to speaking to the media and indeed to politicians. Their chief executive, Mark Zuckerberg, indeed, has refused summonses from national parliaments, no less, to answer questions about the company. So I was delighted when Facebook contacted KCLR a few weeks ago, wanting to tell our listeners about all the good work that they're facilitating across Kilkenny and Carlow. Big and all as they are, they obviously know about the power of local radio. So I was delighted to have the opportunity to talk to their head of operations in Ireland and a man who was also vice president of business planning and operations for Facebook Worldwide. And that interview is coming up next. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, the Southeast's largest independent accountancy practice, www.onf.ie. KCLR. KCLR. Proud to be local. I'm joined on the line by Gareth Lamb, who's head of Facebook Ireland. Gareth, you're very welcome to The Bottom Line. Thank you, John. How are things going for Facebook Ireland these days? A huge company with something in the region of 5,000 employees in Ireland. Yes, um, they're going well. I mean, at Facebook Ireland, we closed our offices in early March, actually, before the government uh, recommendations or mandate uh, around the lockdown to allow our employees to work safely from home. I mean, we're fortunate that as a technology company, most of us are able to do our jobs remotely. We have the technology, everyone has laptops, you know, we're used to doing video calls. So 95% of uh, people working for Facebook in Ireland are, are at home at the moment. And we actually recently just announced that any of our employees who can do their work remotely can continue to do so through to the end of this year. Um, but, you know, we will, you know, we are planning return to opening the office on a phased basis. Yeah, huge, uh, yeah, huge uh, change in operation for yourselves, just as the same as anyone else. Now, part of the COVID epidemic is a huge amount of time people spending at home and also people spending a lot of time online. I would imagine you've had a massive surge in terms of Facebook use. Yeah, we have. We've seen uh, a very big surge in activity uh, across all our um, apps and services. Of course, it's not just Facebook, it's Instagram and WhatsApp as well. So we're seeing a lot of um, increase in messages, you know, WhatsApp video calling, usage on Facebook. I think, you know, the, the service has always been around 
connecting people and bringing people closer together. So I think this pandemic has sort of, you know, accelerated that for a lot of people. And of course, with people confined and not being able to communicate, WhatsApp, photos, Facebook messages and so on, um, an unprecedented time in our society and communities responding and Facebook very much part of that. And you're keen to, I suppose, communicate the message that Facebook is is, uh, facilitating people to come together to lift the spirits during this very difficult time. Yeah, of course. I mean, people have always come to Facebook, Instagram, or WhatsApp to build community and connect with friends and family. But in recent weeks, as we adjust to staying at home, uh, we're seeing communities on our apps come together to support each other in extraordinary ways. And I think, you know, people in Kilkenny and Carlo uh, have been remarkable, not only supporting their own friends and families, but frontline health workers, emergency service personnel, and even, even complete strangers. Yeah, and, and thousands of people, as you say. I have a, a press release in front of me, the Kenny COVID-19 volunteers, um, people coming together, the, the community support group. So so literally thousands of people. Does something like that place, um, you know, with huge upsurges in, in usage, does that create technical problems or issues? Or it, it has to be managed, presumably, like any platform when you have increases in uh, usage. Yeah, I mean, we, we have, you know, capability to flex, you know, our data centers, you know, the usage. So we've been well capable for adjusting. We've had no, you know, uh, what we call SEVs or breakdown in the service to our users. Obviously, our, our teams of engineers and our data center places are working hard to make sure both the quantity and quality activity uh, stays strong. But we haven't had any issues to that effect. Yeah, no. As um, communities have been hit, all sorts of activities such as festivals have have been sidelined and new ways been found through Facebook for people like the Thomastown Creative Arts Festival and, and different groups in this area uh, to express themselves. You're delighted to be in, involved in that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, music and arts, for example, are really important activities for people when staying at home and staying engaged. So, you know, at, at art centres, for example, are using Facebook and Instagram to adapt their programmes. I mean, w- one example is the KCAT Art Centre, you know, who launched a weekly art challenge on their Instagram page to keep its followers' sort of creative juices flowing. Or on the music side, you know, C- Carlo singer-songwriter Dave O'Neill is using his Facebook page to live stream concerts every Friday and Sunday to people who are missing out on their live music fix due to all this cancellation of gigs you referred to. So... Arts and music have been a huge part of it and live streaming on Facebook and Instagram. But I think also the community stuff uh, has been really important. I mean, you mentioned the Kilkenny COVID-19 volunteers page. That has over 5,000 members from across Kilkenny in it. And basically they gather together online to share community news, tips for staying positive, mental health resources and information on how to access financial support for, for individuals and businesses. Yeah, and, and another whole area that we've seen around here is online fitness classes. Um, yeah. People trying to keep the flab at bay and, and all sorts of videos and, and pictures surfacing across. I've seen them on WhatsApp, Facebook and Instagram. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a huge part as well. Fitness and wellness, both mental as well as physical. From your Joe Wicks to much more local kind of yoga and gym centres. I mean, I, I myself have been doing those uh, as I work from home to try and keep uh, not just fit but mentally sane as well through all this. Very important. Now, Gareth, I have to ask you about the whole issue of misinformation. Um, the, you know, the Director General of the World Health Organization has said we're not just fighting an epidemic, we're also fighting an infodemic. You know, and there's a lot of misinformation out there. And we have to say, you know, there can be misinformation on, on traditional media as well. But Facebook is, is different. It's an important front of the battle. What, what are you guys doing about it? 
Yeah, you're right that misinformation is a big issue, in particular around COVID-19, but even on other issues too. Look, at Facebook Ireland, we're working really hard to keep people accurately informed throughout this. As well as enforcing all our misinformation policies, we're working very closely with the HSE to ensure people have access to accurate information. So, for example, we're running a pop-up post on everyone's newsfeed, directing them to the HSE website. We're supporting the HSE with free advertising across our platforms. Anyone who searches for coronavirus on Facebook or Instagram is directed to the HSE website. And we've also developed a COVID-19 information centre, which is a dedicated tab on everyone's newsfeed with the latest information and global you know, and local health authorities. So the HSE has seen a huge uptick in traffic from us, over 200,000 visitors since we began working with them on, on COVID. So, you know, really working hard on this. But I, I, should, I, I will take the opportunity just to take, say one other thing, John. In addition to all these measures we're doing, we, of course, support the government's calls, encouraging people to think before they share as well. Mm. Even even stuff from well-meaning friends and families. And, you know, really think before you share and ensure the information is from a trusted source like the HSE or official spokespeople. But there is a huge amount of misinformation on Facebook. I mean, I've seen, uh, you know, a quick look around. I saw... Uh, a, a actually somebody that I knew, uh, making a video which was claiming that Bill Gates had prof- propagated COVID-19 for profit and that basically it was a hoax. Um, yeah. I couldn't allow him on KCLR to talk about that, but yet he seems to be okay on Facebook. Yeah, well, first of all, I agree. There is a lot of silly and crazy stuff that people uh, share. You know, we're a platform, not a publisher. So, you know, we don't sort of edit everything that, that goes up to start with. But we do, of course, have a responsibility and an accountability to reduce or eliminate false news, especially where it can be dangerous or encourage, you know, incitement to, to, to crime. But why but don't you just take it down, Gareth? Sorry? Why don't you just take it down? Well, there is a, a fine line here between freedom of expression and, you know, hate speech or, you know, incitement to crime. We do, of course, take huge measures. And I must say we're in a very different place to where we were in 2016. Like, we, we basically either remove stuff that breaks the rules, reduce it in terms of its distribution, and a large part of what we do is also informing people about stuff they've seen, about whether it's been deemed um, to be false or not. I'll give you an example specific to the COVID-19. In, during the month of March, we displayed information warnings on approximately 40 million posts on Facebook, which were fact-checked by independent fact-checking, fact-checking partners. And when people saw these warning labels, about 95% of the time, they don't go on to view the original content. Sounds like a publisher to me, though. You, you said earlier you're not a publisher, but you are editing content in that way. We take down when it violates our published content policies, which is around things like I mentioned, like, mm. like um, uh, hate speech, etc. We don't want false news to go, to go viral on Facebook. We don't want to be a censor either. And we think reducing the spread of fake news and sharing ratings from fact-checkers strikes that right balance. And, and uh, you, you flag, I think, up to 95% of, of stuff, or, or sorry, the evidence shows that if, if you flag stuff as not been trusted information, about 95% of people don't click on it. Correct. Yeah, but that still leaves about 5%, and in Ireland that's about 120,000 people. You know, so can you understand yeah. criticisms that you're you're facilitating almost the spread of kind of incredible conspiracy theories such as coronavirus is a hoax. Yeah, look, we need to strike the right balance between allowing people to share stuff which is silly or stupid and they have silly ideas versus being a censor of it. 
as I said earlier, when it affects people's safety or health or encourages to do things which affect, which, which affect their health or crime issues, we take it down. But there is a fine line between, for example, uh, freedom of expression and hate speech. We are take, we, we're in a, such a different place to where we were in 2016 on this, but there will always be some content that comes up that we don't want to see, we may even, even find offensive, and we take the action as appropriate, but it's an important balance to strike, John. Do you think that's a, a, a dynamic situation and COVID-19 may actually bring changes about in relation to that? Because it is a killer virus. Yeah, I think we've seen, you know, huge success with COVID-19. So it just does show the impact when we have, when we work in collaboration with partners, whether it's health services or, or, or otherwise. I think a lot of this, though, John, is also about education. By that, I mean media literacy and, and news literacy. A lot of what we're doing is trying to give people control and transparency about what they're seeing so that people understand it better. Like, for example, I mentioned earlier, a lot of the fake news or false information about COVID-19 isn't necessarily big malicious programs by, you know, malicious actors. Sometimes it's just well-meaning friends and families who, you know, have a friend in the HSE who said this. Like, a lot of this is about people educating themselves as well. We have a huge responsibility and are doing a lot, as I outlined. But I think increasingly people are understanding that the sources of information, whether it's on social media or anywhere else, are extremely important. Okay, so handle with care uh, information in relation to COVID-19. Exactly. I mean, you know, social media isn't trustworthy or untrustworthy. It's the source, uh, you know, that's important. So people, you know, we're doing lots and lots more. And I mentioned a lot of the success we're having with COVID-19, especially working with the WHO and the HSE. But I think it's an opportunity as well. And, you know, we're helping with this education process with, you know, Media Literacy Ireland and other organisations to help people understand that as well. Do you understand uh, the point of view of traditional media, I suppose, like ourselves, who feel that it's an unlevel playing field, though, in relation to that, where we're legally responsible and can get sued, but it appears a lot more difficult in relation to Facebook? I can understand the frustration, but I think, you know, we have to make the distinction between Facebook as a platform versus a publisher. I mean, the concept of platforms or intermediaries rather than speakers is a well-established one in every major jurisdiction. Um, You know, so, you know, when we talk about, you know, regulation and things like that, we talk about Facebook as a platform, not a publisher. Okay, Gareth. Well, listen, thank you very much for taking the time uh, to talk uh, to us. Uh, Some very important points there about both uh, the great work that Facebook is facilitating around our area and also the challenges uh, posed by misinformation in this COVID-19 era. Thank you very much, Gareth Lamb. Not at all, John. Glad to help and stay safe. Bye-bye. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants. Now offering a complete life and pensions advisory service to business. www.omf.ie KCLR. Proud to be local. Proud to be local indeed. You're listening to The Bottom Line on KCLR. John Purcell with you until about 10 o'clock. If I can get my timings correct. Now, businesses began to reopen during the week. I took a quick trip down High Street in Kilkenny on Monday morning and one of the first businesses uh, I saw was Richard Doer, optometrist on High Street, a long-established business in Kilkenny. Richard joins me on the line. How are you this morning, Richard? Morning, John. Good morning to all your listeners. Very well indeed. Thank God. I'm delighted to be 
back in uh, 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 back in practice again uh, to the new norm. The a new, new norm. norm, indeed. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I took a quick peep inside your uh, your premises. Uh, you had screens. You're wearing a surgical. Your bicycle and your helmet. You look very well. Absolutely, <laughs> and and you were looked very well in your surgical <laughs> mask and your plexiglass screens. That, that's it. That's the sort of the, the new the new norm. I'm afraid the, the, the way things have changed a little. Yeah. But you have adapted and you have changed. How's it going? You ne- nearly have uh, the first week under your belt at this stage. Well, funny enough, uh, yeah, I was just saying to the first uh, appointment there this morning that, you know, uh, I suppose t- day six is, is today, uh, day five was yesterday, and yesterday was so much better than, than day one. And day one felt so unreal, so uh, so, so so hard. Uh, everything was, was difficult just to, to uh, get used to uh, citing people in different locations and in practice the way we had to instruct our patients and the way we have to uh, instruct ourselves uh, to behave. So, I mean, every, everything has changed uh, utterly, but uh, at the same time, you know, funny enough, you can get used to anything, I suppose. And uh, day, day five and day six certainly is, is better than day one. Give us a brief rundown of the kind of changes you've had to implement. An optometrist that's very up close and personal, you're literally yeah. looking into someone's eyes at very close quarters. I suppose, John, not to be too long-winded about it, but last Friday we had a staff meeting. We got everybody in, uh, and we went. We briefed everybody on how we hoped uh, things were going to proceed. For the last uh, eight weeks of lockdown, uh, Richie was working behind the scenes and uh, working very hard, trying to get the practice right. Uh, I myself used to come in just to join him. He was intending to repairs and emergencies and that sort of thing. People lost in satin glasses, just running up a, a new pair for them once a week, uh, there was no uh, eye exams being performed and then last Friday like I said we had the staff in and we had an idea of ourselves of how we would like it to uh, go but uh, we wanted staff input into into how we were going to run the practice and um, we got them all uh, in and we wanted their their opinions as to uh, so some things that we had set up the, they weren't quite happy with they wanted to change around and they were right they have to say they were they, 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 they were uh, correct in their assessment of what uh, what uh, we had laid out and what we could improve upon so uh, for, when they come in now the first thing we have to do is staff all we have to record each other's uh, temperatures using a thermometer then of course we of course we sterilise before that with hand sterilisers and everything else. Then we uh, get changed and again sanitise, and then we get into our workstations and we've uh, divided the practice into six separate uh, workstations or uh, work work points. And so anybody coming in, the first thing we have to do now, we must record the name of the person and either telephone number or their address. Sometimes we know that offhand without having to ask them we'd record that on a, a sheet of paper so that uh, if there anything arises afterwards or subsequently uh, we'd be able to help out uh, for contact tracing uh, we divided the staff into two uh, two st- we have the staff uh, so monday tuesday wednesday we brought half the staff in thursday friday saturday we have the second half of the staff in uh, i myself have been appointed to do all eye exams uh, richie is downstairs on the on the the, the the shop floors of our doing all dispensers and 
and uh, just seeing that things are monitoring the progress of uh, the way we've uh, laid it out and again just to establish the new uh, routine and, and trying to get a, some sense of norm about it. So Rich, um, uh, Richard sorry, you're yeah. into uh, day six and going yeah. well unfortunately we're tight on time this morning sorry, John, but yeah. uh, you are busy and I think people it's not a walk-in service you need people no. to take appointments. That's very very, yeah, very good point is that people can't just drop in they can't arrive in unannounced uh, they must ring beforehand we must triage and then we'll make the appointments we're only seeing half the number of patients we ever did before uh, we, we set up for one per hour rather than one per 30 minutes that we used to do and uh, we spend not 15 minutes maximum inside in the consulting room with each uh, patient 15 minutes we try to do a dispense if we can't do it in 15 minutes, we recommend that uh, one other member of staff takes over. So nobody's in direct contact with any one patient other longer than 15 minutes at a time. OK, so Richard. These are the types of changes we've had to make. Thank you very much. Uh, that's Richard no, Dorr, no Optimist Trust from High Street in Kilkenny talking to us there now. Uh, a good insight into the challenges facing small and medium-sized uh, businesses. I'm joined on the line by uh, John Moran, who's Chair of SME Recovery Ireland. And John, formerly Secretary General at the Department of Finance and a Director of the European Investment Bank, among other roles. Uh, John, do you think that government and um, the civil service get the seriousness of the challenges facing SMEs? Um, well, firstly, John, thank you for allowing me to come on, and it's great to, to be able to go through these issues down in, in, in Collar in and Kilkenny, because I guess these are issues that are across the country at the moment, and probably even worse in areas outside of the big cities like Dublin, you know. So, I, I to answer your question, I think they're struggling. I mean, I think this is all new to us. I mean, it's obviously a crisis that has hit the country really very hard. It was initially a health crisis, now it's becoming an economic crisis. And I'm not sure that we yet know how big the problem is going to be. And I think that's making it very hard for governments to actually come up with the right policies, um, you know, multi-year policies, because nothing will solve this in the next week or two, as, 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 you know, we just heard there, businesses have to re-change their business models, but they don't know how many customers can come in. Will their costs go up? Will their revenues go down? So I think, I think we're still struggling our way through figuring this out. And the SME landscape, I, I, I'm looking at the um, report uh, provided by the National Small Business Recovery Plan by your organisation, and it, it points out that 99.8% uh, of total active enterprises are SMEs, so a huge part of the economy. You're calling for um, basically a bailout for small business as opposed to a bailout for banks. Or a bailout for business just as a general group, right? So I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think one of the big learnings that's coming out of this, and, and that's what we're, the first claim we've been, been making, is that people have to understand just how prevalent small businesses are across the country. I mean, there are one and a half million people employed or engaged in small businesses as owners or family members. And that is a huge percentage of the population, whereas I think we haven't really heard an awful lot about them in the last while. We certainly haven't heard an awful lot about them in the crisis, because I think our, our conversations about business tend to be dominated by multinationals, or even if you think about it, the amount of airtime that we get to the Uli's in Dublin, which is still a large group rather than the small coffee shop or small sort of pub that's really struck in, you know, downtown in, in, in Kenya or Carlo or wherever. 
Yeah, so describe the bailout that you believe that business needs. Uh, you know, we heard earlier on from Eamon Quinn who was talking about, you know, political talk is starting to come to, oh, we can't be spending too much and we need to cut back. You're, you're a believer in uh, there needs to be a big and bold investment uh, to aid recovery. Yeah, I think that's the difference, right? I mean, so so we we kind of are, are on the side of the people that think that this is a of a, a one-off shock to the system. It's different than 2008 and nine, where our economy going into the crisis was really badly structured. Uh, we weren't competitive with too much spending in, in property. We had borrowed too much money ourselves in households. So that's a different situation this time. There's this health crisis. It's almost a bit more like if you imagine an earthquake hitting Ireland or a large sort of, you know, hurricane or something. So it's it's got a, and of course there could be second waves and we have to think about that. But that means that you need to kind of try and fix the problem as quickly as possible. And one of the problems to be fixed is going to be the unemployment problem. I mean, I think it was during the week the minister said there could be 300,000 people in unemployment when we, as we come out of the crisis here. Um, not everyone will be able to re-jig their business just like the one we just heard, right? So the first priority for us is to fix employment and jobs. And to do that, you have to fix the companies and the small businesses that can actually employ those people back again. Mm, um, and, and to do that, they're now at the moment reeling from the health crisis that hit them and hit their profits, but also hit their reserves. I mean, for the last couple of weeks, while many of us have been sitting at home, we have been sort of, many of us are looking to be still getting our, our, our incomes. They've been getting no income, but they've also been paying all the bills of the business. Yeah. The rates. And it's, it's there where we think we need to start. We need to basically compensate them for those as if it was like an insurance claim for that for that hurricane. And so uh, finally, um, John, also you, you, you think that there's a, a demand boost needed as well. That's more on the demand side of the economy as well as the supply from businesses. The government needs Absolutely. to boost demand. Yeah, How do yeah, they do yeah. that? Well, there's a lot of things you can do there, but one of the things is you can help businesses like what we just heard to give them money at a very low, if not zero rate of interest to do all the changes in their shops, right? And all open up the streets for pubs and restaurants and others to get more space and things like that. And then we have to look at people's incomes, generally savings that are in the country and how we might encourage people to actually spend in the shops. But I suppose the most important thing really we're claiming is that we can't forget the small businesses and we really think they're being forgotten about in this and so what we're calling a government to do is acknowledge that they are different they need a different solution we can pay for that in the moment by borrowing from europe and then pay it back as we have a bit more economic recovery but but if we don't do that then these people will not get back into jobs and the businesses won't reopen and, and we are going to be heading for a very very tough couple of years with large amounts of unemployment to be paid. So okay, John. It's kind of, it, it seems like a lot of money to spend, but it's sort of a cost we can't afford not to spend. Okay, John Moran, thank you very much. That's John Moran talking about the key principles behind the National Small Business uh, Recovery Plan, which he and a group of other businesses have uh, brought about. Now, I'm joined on the line uh, by John Hurley from Kilkenny Chamber of Commerce, uh, who's on to tell us about a survey that the Chamber uh, undertook. John, good morning to you. Oh, I seem to have lost John Hurley uh, from Kilkenny Chamber of Commerce. Uh, We'll try and get him back. We'll take a quick break. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you with thanks to O'Neill Foley Accountants, offering a broad range of business and advisory services to businesses large and small across the southeast.
ACLR. Proud to be local. Proud to be local indeed. John Purcell uh, struggling with you, <laughs> struggling with you somewhat on the technical aspects, chopping off the wrong people on the wrong lines. Lots going on, lots of flashing lights, but I'm sure you forgive me. We're here. Uh, I'm still earning my wings. I have a big L plate on my back as a, a technical operator of a radio studio, but I'm joined on the line by John Hurley, uh, who's the chief executive of Kilkenny Chamber of Commerce. Good morning, John. Good morning, John. Great to be here. Thanks yeah, just, um, sorry now, I'm running a bit behind time, but w- we have to talk about a very interesting survey that you had uh, just released during the week, a consumer sentiment survey, and it's all about consumer sentiment. Tell us more. That's right, yeah. Well, we're acknowledging that uh, people have been through an awful lot in the last number of weeks since this amazing COVID thing landed upon us. Uh, we decided to put out a survey to try and determine how are they feeling? You know, have they changed? What has changed? And indeed, what must change going forward in terms of the way we uh, conduct ourselves and so on. So we discovered then that a lot of people seem to have developed new habits. And these are simple little things like meal planning, uh, using a shopping list when going shopping, uh, bulk buying and so on and so forth. And so there's a number of of, of interesting things there. And the key thing then was with all of these new uh, habits that people are developing, we asked, well, do you intend to return to normal when things, you know, kind of start coming back to the way we used to have them? Uh, and and um, the majority said no. Over 58.5% said no, they're going to hang on to these new new habits they've developed. And, like, the key thing here is that there is change. People are acknowledging it in themselves. And we need to change how we do things going forward to to to, um, to make things right and uh, for everybody to engage with. And Richard Dore giving us an insight into the level of change required. It's going to have um, big big implications for business and uh, John Moran talking about government need presume, uh, need to be involved presumably Chambers and Chambers Ireland would support that yeah, absolutely. And we're looking at this very closely. Um, we are very cognizant as well of the fact that we asked one of the questions were people comfortable queuing, um, you know, on, on streets and footpaths where people are also traversing and, 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 and you know, getting about their business. And, and it, it was nearly a 50-50. Half the population is comfortable with that, you know, so long as there's appropriate social distancing, wearing of masks and so on. Uh, another half. Uh, we're not. So there's a lot of nervousness out there. And the key learning point there for us is that not everybody feels as I do, as you do. Um, you know, we need to respect the position of others and like we're all in this together. So the implications when you look at this in Kilkenny is that we have a lot of small places and spaces, nice little shops, um, tight little streets and so on. That's what makes us a great shopping destination. But it's difficult to exercise social distancing in that sort of uh, scenario. And many of the little shops that are great here uh, can only accommodate maybe one or two maximum um, customers at a time. So you're going to have queues out onto the streets. Streets are already narrow, so then you're going to have the queues going onto the actual roadway. And so therefore, that's why we've been having these conversations about looking at introducing some pedestrianisation, maybe some one-way systems and so on. And that's what we do need to do. The key point here is we have to change. And big changes coming from the end of June in High Street and Rose Inn Street, one-way system. Very briefly, your reaction to that? Yeah, I mean, exactly that. We we have to look at doing business differently. Um, and we can't just open up the town the way it was before because it won't function the way it did before now that we have new restrictions and uh, rules in terms of social distancing and so on. So that's why we're 
running uh, events that we did last week in our chamber chat, looking at alternatives. Okay, so can you do, you, there's only so much business you can do in your premises because of the restraints. Uh, can I do more outside the business? Now, there isn't room on the footpath because of what we've just been talking about, but there's loads of room online. And a lot of businesses are dabbling in that space. We ran an event last week and we had uh, some key speakers from Red Sky Europe, from Square Root Solutions and from the Biz Locator, all looking at alternatives and easy ways to, to bring your business, not all of it, but uh, get more of your business online. The, the old conversation, bricks and clicks. Um, and Kilkenny Chamber is working with those guys now to look at possibly introducing a new app for Kilkenny, which retail shops will be able to very easily become part of at low or no cost. Okay. So we're continuing to work on that. And I'd say, look, watch this space. Keep in touch with the Chamber on this because we're working very busily behind the scenes on that and also uh, with the town task force on uh, issues like that. Okay, John, we've got to leave it there. That's John Hurley uh, from Kilkenny Chamber of Commerce. Now, we were talking about innovation and we have a man on the line who's renowned for his innovation. Uh, Very familiar voice to all listeners of KCLR. Sean Swan, how are you this morning? Uh, good morning, John, and uh, hello to everybody out there. Uh, nice morning. Absolutely, nice yeah. Yep. Now, you kept the show on the road, uh, so to speak, during the lockdown. Tell us about how Swan Electrical kept going uh, during these unprecedented times. You're, you're in business a long time, but you never saw anything like this. No, surely this is a whole new learning curve for everybody. Um, we were lucky insofar as we were de- deemed as a part of an essential service and were allowed to stay open behind closed doors and to service people for their... Somebody's washing machine breaks down, it's not a luxury, they need it, right? You know, somebody needs... Nobody can survive without a refrigerator or a freezer. So we were lucky that we were able to uh, provide a service uh, by telephone and we did same-day delivery, or next-day delivery at the worst, and we were able to maintain a fair amount of our turnover uh, and maintain full staff levels. We didn't have any redundancies or we let anybody off. We were able to keep everybody employed. So, Sean, um, you may have heard John Hurley on before talking about bricks Mm. and clicks and the move online and all that. Mm. You're a bit sceptical. You're a big believer in picking up the phone and talking to your local shopkeeper. Uh, yeah, I prefer, I prefer the, the uh, one-to-one, the interaction with the customer. And whereas there's a lot of, uh, has been a lot of switch to online, but monitoring it with other people in the trade, a lot of them are, uh, their uh, online business increased, but not in, we'll say, major appliances such as uh, washing machines, refrigeration, uh, dishwashing, and home appliances, ovens and hobs, etc. The online sales seem to be in the main for Chromecasts, small items, right? Probably were not very much profit, right? And uh, we were still able to do that. If you rang us up, we delivered Chromecasts. I mean, uh, we had an incident where we delivered a packet of batteries to a lady that rang in uh, for... uh, she couldn't get out. She'd been cocooning for about three weeks at the time. A pack of batteries. You wouldn't be retiring on the profit from that, Sean. No, 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 no. But we provide ourselves on community uh, spirit and helping out people. And um, in the course of, of, of the delivery, uh, she spoke to the driver and she was... Um, uh, you, the weather was very good at the time for the first opening a uh, few weeks of the pandemic or the lockdown and she needed the, bat- the batteries in her radio to sit out in the back garden and enjoy a bit of sunshine so the driver put the batteries into the radio for her, set it up for her, wiped it down with wipes, handed it back into the window to her and for €4.50 the lady was 
delighted, rang me and she was... A happy customer. Happy, happy customer. Sean, yeah. I'm going to be killed. I'm running yeah. out of time. But how's okay, it gone over the yeah. last week for you since you opened and customers coming back okay. into your store? Yeah, yeah, we were delighted with that, right? And we put all the social distancing uh, the norms in place like everybody else has been doing there on your radio programme. And we put a member of staff as a meet and greet on the door on the way in. And we would encourage people if the if the the aisle that they wanted to look at to browse in was, was sort of busy or there's somebody else in it we would encourage us to stay where the war at that aisle was free and people were happy and they were patient and everything but it was great to be able to talk to people again on a one-to-one face-to-face you know that's that's what the secret of our business and that's what we like and we like we like that right? and a new world but the, some old, yeah. old business principles like customer service yeah, yeah, meet and I, greet yeah, exactly, yeah. I, I think that that and, and listening to the uh, survey there from the Chamber of Commerce in Kilkenny there that uh, people would like would change their habits now and maybe uh, stick to the old traditional uh, customer sh- uh, service that they were getting, you know. Uh, there's, it's not all about the modern technology, really and truly, in my estimation, anyway. Yeah, it's uh, a lot about uh, keeping it local, keeping it human keeping it and local, keeping it real. Indeed, yeah, yeah, yeah. The fellow online won't sponsor a whole lot. <laughs> Good man, Sean Swan. <laughs> Sean, pleasure to talk to you as usual. That's indeed. Sean Swan, um, the local legend uh familiar to Manny from Casey Lord. That's all we've got time for this week on The Bottom Line. I'd like to thank all our guests, Eamon Quinn, Gareth Lamb, Richard Dorr, John Morn, John Hurley and Sean Swan. Thanks to Deirdre uh, Drummy who produced. I'm John Purcell. Have yourself a good week and in the meantime, enjoy the weekend. We'll talk to you next Saturday just after nine. The Bottom Line on KCLR with John Purcell. Brought to you in association with O'Neill Foley Accountants. Our website, onf.ie, shows the full range of services we provide to businesses large and small.